listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. The men and women of the IWW believe that wars were waged for the benefit of captains of industry and governments, that they turned workers against one another. Thus, when war came to Europe in 1914, the Wobblies were against the U.S. getting involved. Big Bill Haywood said to the members, It is better to be a traitor to your country than a traitor to your class. When America did enter the war in April 1917, nine out of ten draft-eligible Wobblies registered with the Selective Service, and most of those called to arms reported for duty, more or less on par with members of the AFL, which had remained loyal to the government's foreign policy. The IWW was given an unearned reputation of being radicals, draft resistors, and naysayers, thought by many as equals to the Bolsheviks of Russia. The irony was that since 1912 or so, with its effort in Lawrence and Patterson, the IWW had acted as a traditional labor union than a movement of revolutionary change. Speaking of the IWW and other unions with leanings toward radical changes on the lines of Europe, may God have mercy on them, stated U.S. Attorney General Thomas W. Gregory, for they need expect none from an outraged people or an avenging government. Convicted and given long prison times for allegedly planning a deadly terrorist bomb that exploded at a Preparedness Day Parade in San Francisco in July 1916. Because of the entry into the war, certain raw materials were needed in high levels such as copper, coal, and steel. Unions and their members took seriously the government's and the military's need, but also saw the situation as an opportunity to attain deserved improvements in pay and work conditions. Unfortunately, such demands were made by such groups as the IWW. They were associated as radical or unpatriotic. In 1917, the IWW were helping the copper miners in Jerome, Arizona, who had struck for improved pay and conditions, was confronted by the Jerome Loyalty League and local men of commerce. The League's Armed members stood ready to punish anyone who impeded mine production or harassed replacement workers. On July 10th, these vigilantes, armed with guns and pick handles, kicked out IWW strike leaders out of the town. The Wobblies called Washington, D.C. to complain of the violations, but the Department of Justice replied by offering to, to prosecute the Wobblies. In late June 1917, the Brisbane local of the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers, many who were also members of the IWW struck for increased wages 
of $6 a day for more men to be assigned to operate mechanical equipment and reform the system by which Phelps Dodge deducted from the miners weekly paychecks for water, electricity, and the rental of workers' housing. They demanded the end of the company's sham physical examinations by which able-bodied men were excluded from work because of their political convictions. Sheriff Harry Willer and the other authorities held the conviction that strikes which hindered war-related production were unpatriotic and dangerous. At a time when our country needs her every resource, read a public proclamation issued by Willer, these strangers persist in keeping from her the precious metal production of the entire district. We can no longer stand nor tolerate such conditions. Because of the fear of Pancho Villa along the border with Mexico for years and just five months earlier, Germany had sent the Zimmerman telegram offering to restore Arizona, Texas, and New Mexico to the Mexican government if Mexico would attack the United States. Willer and a vigilante group named the Citizens Protective League of 2,000 members on July 12th, along with Phelps Dodge officers, cut telephone and telegraph wires, stopped the railroads, armed themselves, swept through the town, questioning everyone. Any miner not willing to return to work were gathered up, marched to the park in Warren, the next town. Two men were killed in a shootout, a miner and a league member. Nearly 1,300 miners were gathered up, plus three women who were sympathetic to the miners. They were informed of the imminent deportation from the state. An automobile fitted with a machine gun and manned by Willer's men stood by, visible to the captives. Despite the miners stating their wives and families were in Brisbane, that they owned property, had bank accounts, and had lived in town for as long as 15 years, 2,000 miners were herded into 24 boxcars of a waiting freight train. At some point, the state assistant attorney general, Lewis Whitney, heard what was happening and telegraphed Sheriff Willer, following, State by what authority of law you are acting. State fully what violations, if any, took place prior to your decision to deport strikers. It is not certain if or when Willer received Whitney's message. The men on the train endured several hours during the heat of the day when they reached Hermanus, New Mexico, 180 miles away. Left stranded without food or water, they were told they would be killed if they attempted to return to Brisbane. Eventually, they were given refuge at a U.S. Army camp of Columbus, New Mexico. President Wilson reminded Arizona Governor Thomas Campbell, Brisbane had the right to defend itself against violence, not to do violence. Many Americans were disturbed by the kidnapping of the Brisbane workers. Organized labor rallying the loudest, seeing this as capital having another way to counter legitimate worker grievances, the forcible deportation. Labor Secretary William Wilson led an inquiry and found the actions of Sheriff Wheeler and the vigilantes to be wholly illegal and some mining officials and deputies were arrested. A federal court later dismissed the cases. Brizzy was just the beginning of a season of confrontation for the IWW 
as the ruthless nature of the Jerome and Brisby affairs was soon replicated in Butte, Montana, a rough anti-union town that had chased the WFM out in 1914 and where the IWW was active on behalf of striking copper workers of the Metal Mine Workers Union. Bill Haywood called Butte the city with the copper soul, a place where the people breathed copper, ate copper, wore copper, and were thoroughly saturated in copper. Work-related diseases and injuries were so numerous, it was said that there was as many miners in the local cemeteries as there was toiling in the mines. On June 8th, electrical cable that powered underground pumps at the Speculator Mine outside Butte broke, filling the lower levels of the mine with smoke and gas, claiming 164 workers' lives. By mid-July, word had arrived of the massive deportation at Brisby, and Butte strikers appealed to Montana Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin, a pacifist, and the first woman to serve in the House of Representatives to safeguard their rights and block any similar action by local mine owners. But it was to no avail, for in a month, local copper mine bosses, with the aid of U.S. soldiers, seized and deported Butte's IWW leaders. Frank Little was a prize catch of the sweep, a legendary wobbly organizer known to describe himself as half-Indian, half-white man, all IWW. Little had been in the thick of several nasty IWW scrapes out west and bore the bruises for them. On entering Butte, supporting himself on crutches, he stood on a soapbox saying, The war in Europe is a capitalist slaughter, while the U.S. soldiers serving there are Uncle Sam's scabs in uniform. Late in the night of July 31st, Six masked men entered Little's boarding house room as he slept, abducted him in his underclothes, and dragged him out to a waiting car. After driving him around for a couple of hours and subjecting him to occasional beatings, at one point they pulled him by a rope from the rear fender. They arrived at a desolate railroad trestle on the outskirts of town and hanged him from one of the trestles. A note found pinned to his corpse the next day read, First and last warning, followed by the numbers 3-7-77. An allusion to the state of Montana required dimensions for a grave 3 feet wide, 7 feet long, and 77 inches deep. The Wobblies came to the reality as they buried and mourned their friend that the movement not only faced confrontation from vigilantes, but the federal government had painted a bullseye on the IWW. President Wilson ordered a full investigation of the IWW to be led by Judge Harry Cummington, but he did even more in 1917. Congress passed the Espionage Act, criminalizing the relating of false reports or false statements that had the potential to interfere with the U.S. military or any acts that aim to cause insubordination among military personnel or obstruct military call or interfere with military enlistment or recruitment or interference with war manufacturing. Next in 1918 came the Sedition Act, which made it a crime to utter, print, or write, or publish any disloyal, profane, 
scurious or abusive language about the government. The Constitution or the military are to encourage resistance to the United States or to promote the cause of its enemies. The government did not stop there. Next was the Immigration Act of 1918, expanding the Anarchist Exclusion Act of 1903, which had been crafted in response to the murder of President McKinley, decreed that aliens who were anarchists are believed in the overthrow of the federal government or the assassination of government officials could be barred from America, and those already here could be deported with no requirement that the person had done anything wrong or illegal. Another way in which radicals found themselves in the government site was for violations of the Conscript Act of May 1917. All aliens were required to register with the draft and any who had began naturalization proceedings could be called up for military service. Big Bill tried a preemptive maneuver offering the IWW's full cooperation, including the opening of the group's files to the government. On September 5, 1917, Department of Justice raided 48 IWW halls across the country and seizing five tons of documents. On September 28th, a federal court in Chicago indicted 165 Wobblies. The issuing of the indictments brought dissension within the IWW into the open when Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Carlos Tresca, Joe Adder, and Arturo Giovanetti insisted that their cases be severed from the rest. Flynn contended that this was the best means of thwarting the prosecution by forcing the government to present specific evidence against each individual having done wrongdoing. Haywood and others, Wobbly's leaders, disagreed. The IWW lacked funding to combat individual cases. Haywood was unaware that Flynn had written a letter to President Wilson offering mild apologies for her radical past and disassociating herself from the IWW. Issues already existed between Flynn and Haywood from a few years ago over a strike in the iron mines at Misabi Range of northern Minnesota. In 1916, Tresca was charged as an accessory to murder in the death of a sheriff's deputy. Flynn, against Haywood's wishes, urged four miners to plead guilty and accept a reduced sentence, a move that went against the IWW policy and was seen as an expedient to get Tresca off on his charges, who might get deported if convicted out of legal jeopardy, in any event, the strategy to separate the cases worked as all four had the charges dropped. On April 1, 1918, the trial of the 101 Wobblies started in Chicago, while other proceedings against scattered cells of IWW members ensued in Omaha, Wichita, and Sacramento. John Reed said of the Chicago defendants who believe the wealth of the world belongs to him who creates it the boys who do the strong work of the world. Although the Espionage Act was used against the Wobblies, each of the defendants was accused of over 100 specific crimes as part of what the prosecutor called a substantial IWW conspiracy. These include opposing the draft, urging IWW members to refuse induction, encouraging insubordination in the army, and taking part in strikes aimed at crippling the war effort. How we, 101 defendants, 
have conspired together to arrange such a conspiracy we never knew for most of us had never met prior to our arrest the prosecution was formally led by charles f klein the u.s attorney for northern illinois although the actual lead lawyer was frank k nebuchadnezzar a veteran legal representative of western mine owners the IWW defendants had as their lead attorney George Vanderbeer, known as the counsel for the damned, for his willingness to defend hard luck wobblies in several Western courtroom fights. Vanderbeer attempted to get the cases dismissed for violation of the First and Fourth Amendments and for the treatment of those detained and even their friends and family who attempted to visit them had been abhorrent. His attempt failed, so he warned Landis that such spurious charges would anger the working class. The government ignored the warning. The government raided the group's Chicago offices, again making additional arrests, disruption of their ability to raise defense funds. Congress was considering several bills in the spring of 1918 that would make the IWW organization illegal. While none were passed, it hurt the IWW's public image. The government case was weak, blaming the alleged wobbly conspiracy on the seditious and disloyal characters and teachings of the organization. If you were a bum without a blanket, if you had left your wife and kids when you went west for a job and never located them since, if your job never kept you long enough in one place to vote, if you slept in a lousy bunkhouse and ate rotten food, if every other person who represented law and order beat you up, how in the hell do you expect the man to be patriotic? One allegation the IWW found harder to disown was that of sabotage, as they had at times encouraged it. Sabotage had a Belgium origin referring to the act of working with deliberate slowness as in the manner of a peasant who wore the clunky wooden shoe known as sabbats. Flynn had once published a booklet in praise of the practice and the IWW had used a related symbol, the Sab Cat, as part of an organizational logo since 1910. Prosecution went back to the Haymarket strategy reading IWW publications. The defense used the same strategy, including a report by Presidential Commission stating how much the American workers had sacrificed for the country during the war. podcast with your family and friends please rate our podcast on itunes it helps others find us if you want to contact us to suggest a topic have a question or just want to say hi our contact information is in the show notes along with our sponsor the national league of justice and security professionals where the members come first <laughs>